pretend that you and I are on the phone. For some reason, neither of us can seem to remember who called who. I'm pretty sure that you called me, but you keep insisting that I called you. I guess it doesn't really matter. All that matters now is that we're connected. You tell me you're bored, you're in traffic, you're on the subway, it's 4.30 at work on a Monday and you just finished all your work for the week. You've got 30 minutes to kill and you're gonna lose your freaking mind if you don't find something to do with it. That's why we're talking. You want me to tell you a story. You love a good story, you tell me, but come on. I knew that. Because who on planet Earth doesn't love a good story? Well, it just so happens that I've got a story that I've been dying to tell you. And I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, we're not on a call. This is clearly a podcast. And if I'm about to hear a story that's going to span multiple episodes on a podcast, then it must be one of those hardcore, journalistic, this unbelievable series of dark events really happened in murder mystery, Alabama kind of story. And you would be wrong. This will not be that. Trust me, this is not the next serial. Actually, once upon a time when this story was a script, it was supposed to be the next Pirates of the Caribbean. And then when it was a book, it was supposed to be the next, I don't know, Hunger Games. But you know what? As a podcast, it will be the first of a new thing. It will be one epic, sci-fiical, fantastical adventure story told by yours truly from my mouth to your ears week by week. And I promise you, I promise you, even if I only get two subscribers, I will not stop telling this story until I finish what I came here to do. So really it's up to you. Are you up for the adventure? Do you wanna hear this majestical story from humble beginning to harrowing end? You're still listening, so I'm gonna take that as a yes, or at least a solid, eh, we'll see where this goes. And I'll take it. So get comfortable, my friend. Break out the Capri Sun, secure your Haribo gummy bears, because here we go. Ivoma Okoro is my name, telling stories is my game. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, but I live in LA now. Welcome to the very first episode of my storytelling podcast, Vega, a sci-fi adventure. Vega is the name of the podcast because Vega is the name of the main character. A sci-fi adventure is also in the title because that is the genre of story that this one falls into. Parentheses, it also has a lot of fantasy elements, so don't be surprised by that. Full disclosure, we'll be using our imaginations, which shouldn't be scary at all because even if you are a fully grown adult human being, you use your imagination all the time, trust me. Though I'm pretty sure that past a certain age, its main uses involve conjuring up worst case scenarios. For the next, uh, I don't know, year, while I'm telling you this story, we're gonna put that thing to better use. We're gonna be using that imagination to go on Vega's journey and it's going to be awesome. I think you'll really like it and I know I'll enjoy getting to share every last detail with you. 
It's a story I've been working on for the last two years, basically, all alone in my room, and I'm excited to finally be putting this thing out into the world. So, without further ado, I'm gonna give you what you came here for. I'm gonna tell you Vega's story, but to really get her story started, there's someone else I kinda have to tell you about. Someone who is currently having the best day of his life, and consequently, it will also be his last. Dr. Drake Muckrow. That's the name of the someone else I want to tell you about. The guy who's having the best day of his life. And this is despite the fact that he had killed 400 people before breakfast this morning. I'm not really sure how distasteful he found this act, the killings, but I'm 100% on how he felt about this actual breakfast. Loved it. Five stars. Would recommend. It was this walnut raisin cereal recipe a smart fridge had just recently put together, a recipe especially calibrated by his fridge to suit his ever-changing taste. I think if he would have asked Muckrow about those killings, he would have said it wasn't his fault. He had always made his instructions to clients very clear. If they paid the monthly maintenance fee on their shiny new synthetic organs, in turn, he would make sure that said organs wouldn't for whatever reason, spontaneously and irreversibly destroy themselves. And really, was that asking too much? If he had gone through the trouble of sequencing their DNA against the hundreds of other data points that they gave him, engineering the very organs that would save their lives, the least they could do was pay him the proper thank you for the upkeep. Side note, the organs were completely self-sustaining. This guy had over 700,000 clients off the black market and none of them knew this. And if they found out, what could they do about it anyway? He just presses a button and they die. That's how he did it. That's how he killed 400 people at one time. But let me tell you the reason why he did it. Because he raised the fees last month. And without fail, every time he raised the fees, his clients got a little too snippy about the payments. So when he woke up this morning, he did the usual. He did his stretches. He prayed to his God for a little bit. And he input the number 400 into his system. Bleep, bleep, bloop. The system selected 400 random clients. And boom. Mass hysteria this morning as hundreds of people all over the country drop dead in their homes, seemingly at the same time. The leading culprit? Organ failure. Mass implosion before cereal. Muckrow checked his bank account as soon as the story broke, and with jubilation, he saw that the monthly maintenance fees from nearly 700,000 clients had come rolling in. I'll spare you the numbers, just believe me when I say it was a lot of money. And no sooner had he checked his bank account when a message came in on his link. It was for a job interview, one that he'd been waiting for for a really long time, and they were even letting him pick the location. So where else would he go but VIP at his favorite dance club, Inebrios? The interview must have gone really well because now we're outside the club with Muckrow and his interviewers, these two well-dressed ladies, and they're all standing around having their final chats. I said they were well-dressed, but I want to make sure you understand just how well-dressed they were. 
the champagne pink camisole of one of the women, right now fluttering in tonight's lovely breeze, had real ruby red crystals sewn into the lace at the front, and every so often, one of them caught some light and glinted off her body like a homing beacon. The other was wearing a geometric paneled skirt, and each panel had been hammered from the same platinum alloy they were using to make luxury sky pods these days. And Makro had also dressed for the occasion. Despite it being kind of warm out, he was wearing a full suit. It was a sporty gray number made of crisp technical fabric. It had a shade silhouette that fit the contours of his reedy six-foot frame to the millimeter with a hidden zipper to bring the lapels together and chrome buckles that folded off the hems of his trousers and disappeared into dark loafers. Anybody walking by could tell that these three were disgustingly rich, but just in case the way they were dressed didn't give them away, each one of them was wearing a sleek U-shaped pin somewhere on them, and everybody knew that only the richest people in Knox could afford a subscription to the wardrobe services of the money god. But also, that's what sets Muckrow apart from his two interviewers. The money god symbol is the only symbol he has on him. Like everyone else who'd come to the club tonight, these two ladies had dressed for the hot weather, and on nearly every stretch of skin that was showing, hundreds of tattoos are standing out to the eye. And that's because, like most everyone else in Knox, these ladies had started out their lives very poor. And in a country like theirs, the more poor you were, the more gods you tended to accumulate over your short and terrible life. These ladies had obviously risen a very long way from the rags part of their rags to riches story. And the fact that Mokro had not one god mark on him besides the one was very impressive to them. Anyway, they're all standing outside having a conversation that can basically be summarized like this. The rich ladies are like, dude, you're rich. You are so freaking rich. You were in the running to replace the money god himself. We follow him now, but we can't wait to follow you. And Muckrow's like, I am so cool. So he reaches down to his data link, which is this tempered glass he wears at his wrist, basically their version of a smartphone, and he hails a Skypod. And they're talking about rich people things, vacations and mansions and incompetent servants. I don't know what rich people talk about. And out of nowhere, the Skypod drops out of the sky. And drops is the right word. Like all empty Skypods on the descent, the machine takes full advantage of free fall. And then two feet before it crashes into the ground, it simply stops. Mukro and the ladies seem completely unfazed by the two-ton flying machine that just fell from the sky. And Mukro says something like, next time you see me, you'll be my minions, bye. And the ladies get into their own pod and fly away and Mukro crosses over to his and he's dancing, he's laughing to himself, he's just so happy. And the security guy, who really can't be more than 12 years old, is standing near the open hatch with Mukro's overcoat and Mukro's like, stay in school, son. And the kid's like, I... I don't go to school. But Mukro's not even listening because the very moment he slides into a sky pod, a young woman he doesn't know slides into the passenger seat beside him and the tinted hatch window swings shut over them. Man and woman stare at each other. Their bodies are mere feet apart. The OS of Marco's Skypod boots up with three slow and deep chimes. Curious. Makaro had never found those chimes seductive before, but also he'd never been this close to a woman like her as he'd heard them either. She, uh, I mean, she was foreign born. She had to be. Her skin was darker than the skin of his people. It appeared unblemished across her wide, round face. 
She had dark eyes with a heavy line of lashes around them. Her black hair was thick and pulled back. You know what she reminded him of? She reminded him of pictures he's seen in his history classes, like the images of native peoples on the units on colonialism. Yeah, he'd always been kind of into that. The native attractions were so, so stately, so regal. There was something enticing about those dark, bald-headed warriors who coated the bones of their enemies in gold and wore them round their necks like jewelry. It was clear whoever she was, this woman possessed much of that noble blood and four millennia of selective breeding had only seemed to refine it. Huh. Yeah, she even had that uh, classic Patraxin look, you know what I mean? How their eyelids just droop and give them that, oh, I'm so bored, life is so boring kind of look. Macro finally stops thinking all these thoughts and he leans back in his seat and he's like, well, this night just keeps getting better and better. To what? But he does not finish that sentence because with a sudden jerking breath that belies her lethargic expression, the woman's hand flies from her side and comes down on Mukro's arm with the needle of a single point syringe. It stabs him. He gasps. He jerks back. His fingers scrabble for the syringe, but the little instrument of death is only further activated by his movement. A ring of smaller needles shoot out of it and bite into his skin like sharp teeth. The thunder collapses, and a colorless shot of neurotoxin pumps straight into Mukro's forearm. There isn't even time for him to scream. The dark shadow of toxin races with impossible speed on the web of nerves that are standing out on his skin, zipping up his neck, flashing down to his fingertips. In the next moment, his body seizes, he breathes his last, and he slumps against his seat with his eyes open. Dead. In the seat over, his killer slumps back in her own seat, closes her eyes, and sighs. Three guesses who it is. Who else? It's Vega Rex, baby. Woo! Oh man, that sigh, that hurricane-like release of all the air from Vega's body, yeah, that was a sigh of relief. Only relief doesn't begin to cover all that she's feeling right now. Mukro had been seconds from getting away. And don't get me wrong, Vega would have found him again, easily. But it would have been the first time in a very long time that she would have failed to complete an announced attempt to kill. The last time that she had announced to the mission deck that she was about to kill her mark and then didn't kill that mark within the same hour was... Goodness, I don't even think she remembers. I mean, it had to be in the early days for sure. Fun fact for you, at this very moment in time, Vega is the premier record holder for consecutive completed ATKs throughout the whole league for all time. One of her many records, actually, and she doesn't even want to think about how close she just came to losing that record just now. If she thinks about it, she'll get angry, and she has to keep her cool at least until she's safely back on her sky bus. So, forget that to the matter at hand. Vega rubs her neck. Updated field note, she says into her data link. Drake Muckrow, B-I-D-8-I-L-698, status changed, deceased. She holds up her link and snaps a photo of Makro's body. Time of death, 0134 hours, local time. She's wearing a dress. It's this sheer gossamer draping thing that's trending right now among the young noxious socialites. Standard girls night out attire. And she reaches under it to a utility vest that's hidden underneath. From this vest, she pulls out a small silver cartridge and a pair of bright blue CSI crime team looking latex gloves. And here's what she does with these gloves. She inspects them. 
She holds them up to the light. She slowly, deliberately puts them on one finger at a time, stretching the latex over each appendage, inspecting, testing, scanning for holes. She pulls them down taut as far as they can go, making sure that they cover her wrists, her link. She's thinking. She's looking over at Makro's body. She takes out another pair of gloves and she puts them on over the first, hastily now because she's wasting time. Kill method, she says, 30 cc's from a kill shot to the right forearm. She presses a button on the syringe and the tiny needles retract with a whir. Retrieved, clean extraction. She opens the silver cartridge and she places the kill shot syringe into the place it belongs. Also inside this cartridge are two rows of compact vials filled with the colorless neurotoxin, the same stuff that just killed Mukro. The vials are glittering like crystals in the light of the Skypod's home screen, and Vega notices something else now. Her hands are shaking. She flinches at two hard knocks on the Skypod's dome window. It's the security boy. What's going on in there, man? Or something like that. I don't know what this kid sounds like. But lucky for this kid, he can't see the death glare Vega's giving him through the window's tint. But he can hear her, because she says this strong enough for him to hear. Trust me, run. And he does. Huh. Wow, he goes tripping back to the club. It really shouldn't have been that easy, but okay. One possible witness, Vega says for the link. And this, my friends is when the Skypod's operating system decides to insert itself into the situation and just make this a party. Saving audio and video link to archives, and the Skypod announces this in exactly the kind of husky, pseudo-sexual, feminine voice a dude like Makoto would program a Skypod to talk to him in. And Vega's like, Frick! Cause she forgot about the OS. The all-seeing eyes and ears of every Skypod in the world since the dawn of time. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I think I know what you're thinking. You may be thinking, shouldn't Vega be better at this? Earlier, you said she was an all-time record holder, but this seems like a rookie mistake. And you're right, it is. Only Vega isn't the rookie it belongs to. It was the apprentice. Vega knew the moment she'd been assigned that stupid apprentice, a night like this was bound to happen. Stay on the sky bus. Just stay on the sky bus. You tell me what's so hard about that. That's plain language, right? Well, maybe the meaning of those words completely changed sometime after Vega started tonight's kill attempt because that is exactly what the apprentice did not do, which forced Vega to have to abandon tonight's original kill plan, risking witnesses, the exposure of her identity, and major contamination to preserve her record. Mukro would have been dead hours ago if not for that, that child Vega was being forced to babysit, and she would have been halfway back to Petraxis by now. At this point, Vega's like Stanley from The Office anytime Michael Scott tries to get him to do literally anything over it. And yes, I know that this TV show does not exist in Vega's world, but you know what I mean. So Vega shoves the kill shot back into her vest and she says to her link, direct message for locksmith, get me a remote hard drive wipe on the vehicle now. But the OS is all, it doesn't even matter, biatch. Local troopers are already on their way and you're going to pay for what you did to Drakey. Oh! Oh yes, and remember that security boy who ran away? Yeah, he's coming back now. And now he's got his arms wrapped around this ridiculously huge compression rifle that looks like it's got a kickback so strong it would shatter this kid's clavicle. And eight more boys with guns are running up behind him. 
So yeah, any hope Vega had of making a discreet escape has now faded, shriveled up, and blown away into the starry night sky. According to recent reports, the local trooper division is very trigger-happy, and you have no idea how much they loved Drakey, more than their own gods. He was their reverence, he was their adoration, he was the greatest doctor, man, friend, lover. Vega swipes the volume down on that real quick, and then she just sits there, in the dark and in the silence, as big black trooper skypods drop into the club's turnabout. She holds up her hand, and with a smooth movement of her wrist, a couple inches of hollow glass slide out of the strap of her data link and into her palm. Call Galex, she says. The screen turns black. The line picks up. And then... Vega, what's up? Ah! Heads up, you're on speaker. I kind of have my hands full, but tell me your day is going better than mine. And that is how this episode is going to end. Thank you so much for being interested in this podcast and taking the time to listen to the end of this pilot episode. If you like what you're hearing, and especially if you want to find out what happens next, listen to more. If you've got a comment or a question for me or simply just wish to connect, you can find me at Ivoma Okoro. That's I-V-U-O-M-A-O-K-O-R-O on both Twitter and the gram. This episode featured music from the band Liberty, their song Doppelganger, as well as Hawk Silver's Mountaintop. The details of both can be found in the show notes. Lastly, this is a brand new podcast, which means it has no subscribers, no ratings, and no reviews. If you think you'll really enjoy this and feel that others would too, would you rate, review, and subscribe to help more people find it? The best thing that you can do, honestly, is just tell people about it. Word of mouth is and will always be the best way things like this get spread. All right, a million thank yous for listening. I hope that you have the best day today. And I will catch you next week, yeah? The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Hi, we're the narrators of Midst. What's Midst? It's very simple. It's a weird, surrealist, fourth-wall-breaking, reality-bending, science-fantasy space western about a small, doomed planet floating in a cosmic ocean of spooky darkness. Upon whose alien landscape an ensemble cast of characters, including a crotchety outlaw, a freakishly virtuous cultist, and a diabolical businessman, make awful decisions and fight like hell to survive when the moon falls out of the sky and a large number of terrible things happen in rapid succession. It's exciting, it's funny, it's scary. It's got neat sound, weird music, amazing visuals, and every episode comes with bonus content you can read and examine. Midst is performed solely by yours truly as the three of us narrate all the action, play all of the characters, and bend a lot of the rules about how telling stories is normally supposed to work. Midst is pretty fun, very strange, and it feels like VR for your brain. We believe you'll enjoy it, or maybe you won't, but there's really only one way to find out.